Well, if you would, open your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. <coughs> the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We are in a series, Imagining the Kingdom. Um, and we're using imagination, just to be clear, lest you think uh, that we're talking about something that's a figment of your imagination. No, we're not talking about something that is a figment of your imagination. But the reality is, and, and, and the, the world understands this fully, is you cannot live any way, any, any particular way, until you imagine the possibility of living in that way. Uh, and, and it's a real simple thing to realize. We all live by imagination every time we go to the store. We go there, we pick up a, a piece of plastic, we stick it in a thing, and that supposedly exchanges money that is worth absolutely nothing as far as its actual value. But because we all believe the story and imagine it's true that it's worth something, it works. And it keeps on working until we all decide that, well, it doesn't work, then it won't work anymore. Okay, so we all live by our imagination. And the thing is, as believers, we need to start to live by imagining what is actually true. Because we don't always see things functioning according to truth. They function according to lies quite often. And so we have to imagine the truth and what that means for our lives and then begin to live that way. And so that's what we mean when we say imagining the kingdom. And the subtitle for this particular message is Captives Led Captive, <laughs> because that's a phrase that's in our text, at least in its uh, more literal translation, that seems odd. If you're familiar with the old King James, you might remember that phrase. So uh, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1, uh, and we'll read through verse 16, if you would join me in reading. <coughs> As a prisoner for, or literally in the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, or the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we come to your word, teach us, call us, speak to us, so that we might hear your voice pulling us 
to walk toward the hope which you have given us in Christ Jesus. Help us to understand that hope more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. In an article in The Guardian on health and fitness, Tim Dowling writes the following. He says, In all the time I spent with Joanna Hall, now Joanna Hall is one of the UK's leading diet and fitness gurus, uh, she barely stopped walking. I would see her coming towards me in Kensington Gardens, London, gliding past the other strollers, as if she were uh, she alone were on a moving walkway. When she reached me, I would fall into step, and off we would walk for an hour. At the end, Hall would stride into the distance and keep walking, for all I knew, until we met the following week. Hall's walk-active system aims to improve posture, increase speed, reduce stress on joints, and deliver fitness, turning a stroll into a workout and changing the way you walk forever. She says she can teach it to me, and we have set aside four weeks for my education. It is easy to be skeptical when someone claims you can reap huge health benefits simply by learning to walk better. You think, I'm already good at walking, and sometimes I walk a long way. But according to Hall, almost nobody is good at walking. Not you, not me, and not all the other people in the park who provide endless lessons in poor technique. I notice they are still managing to get where they are going. Are we not in danger of overthinking something people do without thinking? Dowling says that in his first four hours of instruction, quote, my opening question about optimal walking was, will I look mad? (laughs) I imagined great looping, uh, loping strides and pumping arms. I promise you, you won't look mad, Hall said. But when you stroll haltingly through a public park while someone instructs you on heel placement, you do attract a certain amount of attention. People think, poor man, he's having to learn to walk all over again. They are not wrong. (laughs) Like Joanna Hall, Paul wants us to learn how to walk all over again. Paul's point in this text that we've just read is that he is urging us, literally, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Now, to live is fine, because it's a metaphor for how we live, but it's literally to walk, because in the Jewish mind, you walked in the ways of the Lord, and it was a visual way that they would think about it. To walk worthy means to walk in a way that matches up to, that is congruent with. In other words, walk the talk. If you believe that God has done all of this, chapters 1 through 3, that He has rescued us from being children of... Well, first He's adopted us and He's he's saved us and He's rescued us from being children of hostility. He's broken down the walls of hostility. If, If you believe all of this, now walk consistent with it. Walk consistent with it. The calling with which we have been called. Paul had prayed in chapter 1, verse 18, that we would know what the hope of God's calling is. In other words, that we would know to what end or what purpose God has called us. If you're a believer in Christ, you know that God has called you. To what end? To what purpose has He called me? To what has He called me? And that's what he's praying that we would know is the hope to which He has called us. And now he's expanding on that. In our text, he's going to spell out clearly the hope to which God has called us, the purpose for which we have been created in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to state this up front. 
this urge that Paul is giving us. He's urging us to walk this way. Because his goal is not merely to give us interesting things to think about, but is to get us to live a certain way. He has already told us what God has done for us in saving us, and he has prayed that we would be empowered by the Spirit, as we talked about last week, from within in order to live this way. And both are necessary for us to live this way, but we can't stop there. We must actually go on and start living this way. And so we'll explore this text under three headings. Captive in Christ, captive to a calling, captives led captive. Captive in Christ, captive to a calling, captives led captive. And so our first heading is captive in Christ. Bound in Christ, we might say. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul began, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he tells off as we looked at last week. But here in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, A prisoner, it's literally in the Lord. That doesn't make a ton of sense to us in English unless we think theologically. So often it's changed of, of the Lord or for the Lord or some other version thereof. But it's a prisoner in the Lord. And while it may not make sense on first blush, uh, well, the phrase in Christ is pretty significant in the book of Ephesians. And we talked about that in chapter 1. It's all over chapter 1. And, and, and so we should maybe try to think of it the way we thought of it in chapter 1 and, and wonder what, what does our union with Christ mean for Paul being a prisoner. And if, 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 if Paul, because he's in Christ, is a prisoner, are we in some way a prisoner because we are in Christ. I think we're going to discover in our text that we actually are a prisoner because we are in Christ. Because we, are too, we also are in bonds, just as he was in bonds. Um, the word for prisoner in verse 1 of chapter 4, desmios, has its roots in the word for bonds, or shackles, we might say. The word for prisoner is one who is bound. They're bound in prison, so prisoner is a good English word for it, but we might miss the, the, the idea of being bound. But desmios, well, Paul was bound in Christ, um, but not just him. We, too, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds, has the same root word, okay? Soon desmos, we're with bonds of peace. Just as Paul was a prisoner for the gospel in the Lord, we are a prisoner for the gospel of peace in the Lord. We are imprisoned to live in peace rather than rage and hostility. Back to chapter 2 and what we talked about there. Okay. We were children of hostility, children of rage, but now he's broken down the wall of hostility and we are in the bonds of peace. Okay. Just trying to capture the whole story of Ephesians in this small text in a moment here. So I'm backing up and coming forward here. A bond of peace means that we have a binding obligation to live in peace as far as we possibly can. It's, it's a metaphor, to be sure. The bond of peace, this phrase, didn't just appear as if it was beamed down out of space. It, it falls in almost the exact middle of the letter, which has emphasized the unity that God is bringing to the world in Christ. Leading up to this phrase, we have, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 10, that God's plan for the ages is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, 
where he describes the state of humans prior to the work of Christ as being children of rage and hostility. And the rest of chapter 2 speaks of how God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, making the two one by making peace through the cross. Chapter 3 defines the mystery of Christ as both Jews and Gentiles being united as one in Christ through the gospel and then ends with a prayer that we would make the love of Christ our own in order that we would experience that love in a way that surpasses knowledge, the very prayer that we prayed earlier this morning. This phrase, then, that we've just read, falls in the middle, today's text, and speaks of our unity in Christ and how we are to walk out this peace. And then following our text, we have uh, practical instructions for promoting peace among us. Verse 25 of chapter 4, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Or verse 28, Stop stealing and start sharing. Verse 29, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what builds others up according to their needs in order that you might give grace to the hearers. You see how all of this builds unity, promotes unity. At the end of chapter 4, verse 31, we read, get rid of all bitterness, rage, wrath, there's that word again, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, truthfully, all Christian living that we are instructed to do in the the New Testament is, by and large, follow God's example. It all grows out of how God has acted toward us. I mean, we, we, you really can't say, oh, I really love how God has treated me, but then go treat others differently. We, well, we don't really love it if, if we treat others differently. We, we really don't think it's a very good idea at all. I mean, we like it that he did it for us, but we surely wouldn't want to do it for anyone else. That's not loving it. But as God has done for us, follow God's example. And then we're told later in, in chapter 5 that we are to we speak, singing to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in various ways, we are told to submit to one another. And all of these lead to peace and are followed by being reminded that our battle is not against humans, not against flesh and blood. And then finally, getting back to the metaphor of walking in a manner congruent or worthy of our calling, he says that we are to have our feet uh, uh, prepared for that walk by binding them with the readiness that comes from the gospel of what? Peace. Walk in peace. The controlling metaphor of this letter is adoption, and the central characteristic of living as children of the Father is peace. We are bound in Christ to uh, lives of peace. So, we are captive in Christ. Now, it leads to our second heading, captives to a calling. Let's read the first part of our text again. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life or to walk worthy of the calling you have received, or the the calling with which you have been called, to be more literal. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
And here's this repetition of calling again. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now back to Joanna Hall's walk active system. She, and the way she instructs walking, uh, wants you to propel yourself forward from behind rather than pull yourself into a new space. The reason we all walk wrong is we're trying to pull ourselves into the new space rather than propel ourselves forward. Well, in this metaphorical walk, Paul wants us to be pulled into the space in front of us, but not by ourselves, rather by the calling with which we have been called. That this call pulls us to walk in a certain direction. Roger Payne, the biologist who discovered and made famous the songs of whales, which you might even have recordings of that you play now, they've been made so popularized. He passed away two months ago on June 10th. But in 1971, he published two papers of his, uh, that are of historic significance. One revealed for the first time the haunting songs of humpback whales. And the other claiming that fin whales which is the second in size only to blue whales, made low-pitched calls, infrasonic, okay, below, you know, we have ultrasonic, above this certain range that we hear, and infrasonic, below the range that we hear. Um, Mostly unperceivable to humans that can be heard across entire oceans. Heard across entire oceans. Payne estimated that this call could be heard for, get this, 13,000 miles. The response from the scientific community was not wow, but rather, um, as Ed Young writes, leading well researchers told him that his paper was pure fantasy. Colleagues hinted that critics had been questioning the mental health, uh, his mental health behind his back for a long time. Payne told Young, when you get to distances like that, people just refuse to believe that it's true. Well, now we know it's true. A whale singing off the coast of Ireland can be recorded with a microphone situated off Bermuda. It turns out that, that whales use this sort of underwater sonar. The, uh, they, 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 they send out these songs, and based on the echoes they hear back, they know the map of the ocean floor for hundreds of miles, and so they make the most direct route they can, staying in the deep channels to where they want to go without having to be hindered by anything, well in advance of being there. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. Like, It's a guidance system. Paul urges believers to walk in a path congruent with worthy of the calling with which we've been called. See, as believers, we've heard a voice that's, as it were, echoing back to us. In a way, as we sing the songs of Christ, it calls us forward as it bounces off and pulls us in the direction that we are called to go in. The gospel is a sort of sonar guidance system for our souls, creating a map in our souls where and how to walk. It teaches us to walk completely humble and gentle. The quality, that, that word for gentle, meekness, it's the quality of not being overly impressed by the, a sense of one's self-importance. Gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness, meekness. We're to walk completely humble and gentle. We're to walk with patience, specifically toward others, is the meaning there. Bearing with one another in love. 
See, this does not describe the spirit of our age, which is to rage at one another. That's the spirit of our age. Well, what creates this bond of peace? What creates this obligation, if you will, to live peacefully? What, What creates it? Well, we could simply answer the gospel, and that would be true enough. But Paul gets more specific than just saying the gospel. He says there is one body and one spirit. The body here refers to the church, the body of Christ. We take one loaf because we are one body. We, we, we have to walk in this bond of peace because we are one body. And we share in one spirit. Just as you have been called in one hope of your calling. We're, we're aiming in the same place. It's a repetition of verse 1. The, uh, in, uh, like verse 1 of this calling. Called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Each of these bind us in some way to live at peace. And that bond is a product of our calling. A calling which is voiced in the gospel. A calling that says something like, God made peace with us and now we make peace with others. God made peace with us, and so we make peace with others. We often think of calling as vocation, as if some are called and others are not. Like some Christians are called and other Christians are not called. In some circles people ask, are you called? Referring to some kind of uh, calling to full-time Christian service. That's not really a biblical category per se. I'm not saying it's wrong to be in full-time Christian service. By the way, I am, by all definitions anyway. But that's not a biblical category per se. It's fine that people are, and it's even biblical that people would be supported when they do the work. But a calling to full-time service versus not being called is not a biblical way of thinking about it. That's my point. Um, We are all called. We're all called with one hope of our calling. We've been called to walk a certain way. The gospel calls us there. Scripture predominantly speaks of calling as God's calling us to himself to be his children and to live as his children. We are captives in Christ to a calling which created this bond of peace. So even as Paul was one who is bound in Christ, so too we have been bound to walk in peace. And that leads to the third heading. Captives led captive. Verse 7 and 8. But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high he took many captives and gave gifts to people. To each one of us grace has been given. That is why it says. So the connection between grace being given to each one of us and what it says in verse 8 is important. That is why it says. But it's not obvious why they would be connected. I mean, at least it isn't obvious to me. Well, to each one of us, grace has been given. That's why when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. It's It's not a pure logic connection there, at least on the surface. The any... Well, 
there's a number of translations that will capture a more literal way uh, of reading verse 8. But verse 8, read literally, doesn't make good English. So most translations try to put something better in English. But, but it's, when he ascended on high, he led captive a company of captives and gave gifts to peoples. He led captive a company of captives. The NET Bible captures it. When he ascended on high, he captured captives and gave gifts to men, which, of course, doesn't make any sense if you think about it, but it's what it says, right? The New King James Version, sim- similar to the King James, it, it reads, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. You might remember that, that older language of leading captivity captive, at least if you're my age or thereabouts. Christ freed us from our captor, the ruler over the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, back to the beginning of chapter 2, the children of rage. And he gave us this company of captives that he has freed as a gift to humanity. Literally, he gave us as gifts to the humans, to the peoples. Do you realize that we, the church, yes, we were captive to the Spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. We were captive to the devil, to put it in simple terms. But he has freed us and taken this whole company of captives, and he's given us as a gift to humanity. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, I knew you thought you were God's gift to humanity. But not in that way. Okay, not in that way, to be clear. (laughs) Rather, we have been given sacrificially as a gift to serve the humans, the anthropoids, the peoples. So, we continue to read, Christ gave himself, Christ himself gave, rather, the apostles, and, and, and I like where most translations have some to be. You might read it, on the one hand, Christ gave apostles, and then on the other hand, prophets, and then on the other hand, evangelists, and then on the other hand, pastors and teachers. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants. See, we've been adopted, but we will no longer be infants. We've been created new in Christ, but we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. You know, you remember back to that prayer that we looked at last week when he, he said that if, if we would make the love of Christ our own, that we'd know this love that's beyond knowing, surpasses knowledge. And what's the next phrase? That we'd be filled to all the fullness of God. If you want to know what having the fullness of Christ in us is, it's that love being made our own and walking out the love of Christ in all its width and breadth and height and depth. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And when you read the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, Christ we think of more as Jesus' last name. It's it's not, it's a title. Think Messiah. 
God's reigning king over the earth. But when we grow up, we become Messiah people. We become the people of the Messiah, Christians, people of the Messiah. We begin to extend his messianic kingdom to all around us. That's why he's given us his gifts to the peoples. Amen? Well, what kind of gifts are we? Now, I think here we have to be careful not to overread text like this as if it's a complete list. Like, okay, these are the things we need. We got that. We're good. Paul's not setting out to make complete lists of gifts or offices here or anywhere else in the New Testament. And simply by comparing all the lists, you realize that's not what he's doing. Um, it's not a systematic list of all that God gives. It's examples. Some are this, some are that, etc. First, he lists various equipping gifts. Some are apostles, others prophets, others gospel proclaimers, and others pastors and teachers to equip God's people for works of service. Why does he give them? So that they too use their gifts to build up the body of Christ, according to verse 12, as each part does its work, according to verse 16. So that as Messiah's body, we are mature, a mature representation of him. All of this works together for our gospel witness as we are each playing our part. It works together for our gospel witness that we would be a city on a hill, a a lamp on a lampstand, shining the truth of Christ to the world, that they would glorify our Father in heaven, even if they don't love Him, but they would at least recognize the truth of what He is doing. Every gift is necessary All of them. Everybody is given gifts in this text. Malcolm Gladwell tells of a devastating flood in Pittsburgh on St. Patrick's Day in 1936. Pittsburgh is located at the convergence of two rivers. I may butcher the pronunciation of one of these at least, but uh, the the, the one is the Monongahela and the other is the Allegheny. Uh, and where they converge, they form the Ohio River, which at least we've all heard of, right? We know that one. And on that day, St. Patrick's Day of 1936, the, the river swelled into a massive flood. And among the hundreds of buildings destroyed in the flood was a factory belonging to Hamilton Standard, where a spring was made, a spring used in making variable pitch propellers. That's where they manufactured the spring. And since variable pitch propellers were used on virtually every kind of airplane at the time, of course not today, but at the time, uh, that would have been what was used predominantly, uh, by by shutting down that factory because of a flood, the entire airplane industry was shut down. Couldn't make planes because of a spring. How important is every part? How important is every part? The church cannot grow and build itself up in love and therefore cannot achieve the hope to which it has been called until each part does its work. Verse 16. Everyone is necessary. Some are equippers and some are being equipped to serve in other ways. But every part is necessary right down to a spring, if you will. It may appear, if you walk in here, you say, oh man, what Jerry does is so important. Honestly, I might be the easiest one to replace in this whole thing. I mean, really. 
You know, guys that get up and talk are a dime a dozen. But people that will serve volunteering their time the way you guys serve, are you kidding me? It makes all the difference in the world. Uh, if the sound team doesn't show up, or the media team, well, one, my part's going to be severely hindered, whatever role it does play, and you aren't going to enjoy anything nearly as much. If, if those who teach and care for children next door don't show up, we might have mayhem in here. One of the greatest impacts we can have on a new person walking in these doors is not my sermon. It's you going up and greeting them and welcoming them. You speaking to them. Introducing yourself. I mean, you should just make a habit when you walk in here. Since, by the way, if you're a part of this church, this is your house. It's not my house. It's not a house. It's your house. So you just walk in and ask yourself, oh, do I know that? Oh, them, I don't know them. Well, I should know them. They're in my house. I mean, if you got home this afternoon and you had people in your house you didn't know, well, you'd want to know what they were doing there and who they were, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, then why would you walk in here and see people you don't know and just go sit down? Like, that makes sense? Not a lick. It's your house. Those who gather to pray prior to the service may be unseen, and they may be a small number, and they hide over in a room over in, uh, off the multipurpose room in the corner. Not literally hide, they're, but they're hidden by nature of where they are. And yet they may have more vital impact on what takes place in this service than anything. Like a spring. Who'd have thunk a spring? Not being able to get that particular spring. Not just any spring, but that particular one. Shuts down the whole airplane industry. In the church, like an airplane, one seemingly insignificant part can ground the entire ability of the church to move forward if it is not doing its part. We don't have the option of looking at others and deciding they aren't necessary either. We must reconcile with us because we are not complete without them. See, part of our, the necessity of unity is, is because I can't just disregard you. I can't just say, oh, you don't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, I kind of rather prefer you left. It'd make my life easier. Okay, so you just threw the spring out the window. How's that plane working for you? Not very well. There is important. So you need to reconcile with them because they are needed and necessary. This speaks to why unity bred from humility, courtesy, patience with each other and forbearance are so vital to the church. Without these... We allow the floods of rage and hostility, of grumbling and complaining, and of disputing to disable the production of springs. To disable disable the necessary parts to a well-functioning body. Are you a captive in Christ? We are all captive to something. Christ sets us free from the bondage to sin and darkness, rage and hostility, and cravings and desires of the flesh... Then he binds us to peace, to his cross way of doing things. 
Not cross way as in being cross, but the way of the cross <laughs> in doing things. Not seeking revenge, but forgiving. And then he gives us, the church, as a collection of captives to the peoples. This is why our missional priorities are important. They orient us to the peoples to whom we have been given as a gift. Just a couple of thoughts in closing. We are held captive in Christ to a life of peace. That is our bond of peace. We are captives to a calling which beckons us to one hope. We are captives led captive and given to the peoples as a people who live in peace with each other. You see, we're given to the world as a people who have learned to live in peace with each other. But if we haven't done that, well, we're in trouble. We must learn to live in peace with each other. It's vital that we live, that we urgently pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some of you might feel like your life has held you prisoner to things other than Christ. Maybe you have disabilities that keep you from gainful employment. Maybe you have psychological scars from things that have been done to you. Maybe you're a widow and feel like all your hopes have crashed. Maybe you're a single mom and feel unable to do what you need to do. And and we could go on. If Paul can be a prisoner in Christ, I mean, seemingly, being a prisoner would hinder gospel proclamation. I mean, just run the math on that. You're in a prison. You're not going to do it. But in Christ, he's a prisoner in Christ. He's free to do what? To do what God has him doing for the sake of the gospel, and we are still benefiting from it today. But if Paul can be a prisoner in Christ, cannot one also be a widow in Christ, or a single mom in Christ, or poor in Christ, though you are rich? Does not our union with Christ transform whatever station of life we are in for His glory? Christ calls each one of us through the gospel to walk in a whole new way of life, one that is consistent with the proclamation of Jesus as King, the King who gave Himself up for us, a life that flows from what He has done for us. What is Paul the Apostle urging us to do in this passage? What is he pressing upon us? To walk in a manner consistent with the gospel calling with which we have been called. To learn how to walk all over again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to learn to walk. Help us to walk as you have called us to walk. Help us to be a mature expression of the fullness of Christ as we walk in love, as we bear with one another, as we have patience and humility, as we are considerate of others. As we seek to hear and not to be heard, as we sang a bit about earlier. In Jesus' name, amen.